Welcome to episode 158 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak for the second time with uh, Walter White, my guest from episode 48. Walter is an interdisciplinary philosopher. He works primarily on the philosophy of cognitive and biological sciences, the philosophy of mind, applied ethics, and uh, particularly loves working on the intersections of those fields. Much of his recent work has focused on animal minds, welfare and ethics, as well as evolution. His new book, A Philosophy for the Science of Animal Consciousness, integrates this research into a coherent whole. It's being launched today on the same day as this podcast, 16th of June, with Routledge. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 157 others. Why not let me know via a review, rating or comment? We've had some really kind ones recently with lots of stars. Check out our back catalogue too if you've just found us. Hopefully these conversations are pretty timeless. Um, every person who subscribes, likes, rates, reviews or shares an episode with a friend helps to nudge the world towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info where you can sign up for email updates or just search for sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Once upon a time, we thought of consciousness as this one very narrow thing with this all or nothing property. If my approach will work, I think we'll come to expand it in this much more broader sense where we can think of uh, a lot of different kinds of minds existing in this multidimensional space. The, uh, I think philosophy suffers from this ambition to have these clear-cut concepts that capture nature at its joints and can just carve it neatly. But when you look at sciences like biology, cognitive science, the boundaries are just far too messy. I think in the future, factory farming will probably be illegal, at least in some countries. And one of the th reasons I really enjoyed reading your book is because you cover both. Right? You're setting it in a scientific naturalistic context, but you are absolutely addressing the philosophical thinking too. Good afternoon, Walter. How are you? Pretty well. Nice to see you again, Jamie. Second time on the podcast. It is. Out of 157 episodes, I think you're the only the second person that I've spoken to twice. And it's for a very good reason. So yeah, it's great to <laughs> have the chance to have another conversation and to bring you back on as a repeat guest. And in that first conversation, which I think was episode 48, we already answered all of the big questions we like to ask here what's real, where I think we shared a very broad naturalistic approach to understanding reality by engaging honestly with information about reality. And I think when we were talking about what and who matters, you had a fascinating way of framing your ethics that I really like that ultimately came down to saying, all that matters is what matters to a subject. Um, and again, that ties in very neatly with this idea of sentience, not as some sort of characteristic we've arbitrarily picked to focus on, but it's just a way of describing entities for whom things can matter. And it almost seems sort of tautological and obvious, even though many people viciously agree, disagree with us. So, <laughs> so we've answered those questions and you also sh shared some thoughts about how to make a better future too. But the reason it's great to get the chance to talk to you again is because of your new book, which I want to congratulate you on the launch of, called A Philosophy for the Science of Animal Consciousness, published by Routledge. I actually have a copy already. I was pretty surprised that our 
sending me copies a week before release. I'm pretty excited to be the first person to have one. Yeah, it's wonderful. And I had the privilege of reading a PDF draft of it a few months ago as well. So it's brilliant to uh, understand your insights there. So what I thought we'd do is you can lay out the main arguments of the book. You don't want to say too much because obviously people still need to buy it. But the book and your thinking taps deeply into so many of the themes we talk about here in on the sentientism YouTube and podcast, including you know, what actually is sentience, including the extent of sentience, how did it come into existence, what are its origins, and also critically, what are its philosophical and practical implications too. So it's uh, absolutely the sweet spot of many of the topics I find fascinating. Yeah. I mean, last time when you had me on the podcast, I was a PhD student working on these ideas. Now I have my PhD working as a postdoc and a version of the thesis is now coming out as a book. So yeah, coming full circle. It's great to be on again. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, before we get into the book, do you, do you want to just broaden that out and explain to people who you are and what you do? And just sure. For anyone who hasn't seen the last podcast, I used to be a PhD student at the University of Sydney, working with Paul Griffiths and Peter Godfrey-Smith. Peter Godfrey-Smith well, will be surely familiar to many uh, interested in the sentientism debates because he has written on the octopus and the subjective experience, the, what the subjective experience of many animals may be like, taking an evolutionary approach. And I've been inspired by that, one could say, <laughs> to work on this myself. It wasn't originally planned in my PhD, but as it happens, you quickly get closer to the interests of your advisors drawing on their expertise. And Obviously, Heather Browning, who's my partner and has also been a guest on this podcast, has pushed me to think more about the animal case, the welfare and sentience. So I've, I've really tried to use science to think about how we could create a science of animal consciousness from an evolutionary, non-anthropocentric approach. Because a lot of the debates about whether fish feel pain or crustaceans, octopuses, a lot of the denial of pain in these animals has often rested on a very anthropocentric position where we've developed theories of consciousness on the human case. And then if you look at animals evolutionary far from us with very different brains, I mean, they're not going to have the same brain architecture. And Well, maybe we can say, look, they don't feel pain. But that seems like the wrong approach, uh, similar to how if you look at the human brain and say look this is how vision works in us but the, the eyes of octopuses operate so differently so they can't see that seems like a wrong methodological approach entirely and i i really tried in this book and my dissertation as opposed to to get an evolutionary approach off the ground that isn't just saying look we need to think about the function of consciousness because there's a lot of speculation about this but really ground this deeply in the best science we have about what the animal lives are like of particular species, what the ecological challenges are, to really think about what kinds of subjective experiences would be useful for them to have from a Darwinian perspective. And that's very much why the book is called A Philosophy for the Science of Animal Consciousness, because I try to provide the science with a Darwinian philosophy where we can move away from a kind of human-centric approach and really move to a bottom-up approach that studies consciousness as a natural phenomenon across the branch of life, uh, in, in the animal branch of life, where at least I think consciousness emerged, 
rather than think about it as this human phenomenon and just have theories of this human case. Now, that's just a particular case, which is important in understanding and explaining, but we shouldn't confuse it for consciousness as this broader phenomenon. Yeah, thank you. And it's interesting because mostly in conversations on Twitter, one of the challenges that's presented to me about sentientism and a focus on sentience is that many people will say, well, what you're doing is anthropocentric because you're focusing mm. on sentience because our own conscious experience is so obviously salient to us. Um, it is the only thing we experience, right? It's absolutely central. And then we're doing the, when we look out at you know, other animals or other entities, we're just doing the old fashioned, how like you are me, because the more like me you are, the more you have value. And that is an anthropocentric way of thinking. Um, but that's one of the reasons I really like your approach, because ideally when it's done well, I mean, obviously anthropocentrism can infect science and it can infect naturalism too. But when naturalism is done well, I think it counters anthropocentrism because it does try to take, you know, tries to take a more neutral evidence-based perspective. And in particular, the thing you're doing is making it very clear that the sentience we're talking about here predates humanity itself by many hundreds of millions of years. So it can't be, in that sense, an anthropocentric concept because it predated us as a phenomenon by a long time. And you're also making the point that humans are a vanishingly tiny proportion of the sentient beings here as well. So if we're going to pick something to justify anthropocentrism, sentience wouldn't be it because we're a vanishingly tiny minority of the sentient no, beings No, I today. agree fully with this. I'm sure many people will be familiar with this argument against kind of Jeremy Bentamite approach to utilitarianism, where this view has been criticized as a philosophy for swine, for pigs, but it wouldn't work for humans. Well, so be it. At least we can apply it to the animal case and think about which beings can feel positive and negative states, um, broadly summarizes pleasure and pain. Unfortunately, there's often this confusion that it just describes these narrow mental state we associate as like a very special feeling, like when you get injured, when rather from a utilitarian perspective, it's any kind of negative experiences you may undergo, whatever they are, they can be very different for different animals, right? Um, and similarly with pleasure, there's a lot of different kinds of pleasures. And that's really what I'm interested in. So in a way, we could almost bracket off the human case, or we could even acknowledge that in the evolution of humans, um, in fact, I suggested a bit in my, in my book that in the yeah, time frame of human evolution, where trade and barter became more important, um, that humans needed a kind of faculty for more abstract ways of relating things that didn't work in a kind of bentamite way, where you just feel how good or bad something is. You needed more abstract ways yeah, of um, abstracting away from situations, how good are trading partners to engage with. Uh, you have to calculate how much value will derive from saving particular food items, storing them for later. I think that has driven human cognition towards having these more abstract ways of relation. But really, in the animal case, I don't think those would be all that relevant. Although, admittedly, when we think about some animals um, that are often heralded as these very intelligent animals like octopuses, ravens, um, chimpanzees, here we can see some at least proximate form of having these more abstract evaluations when they're able to 
the fair, the consumption of a tasty treat, save it for later, and perhaps are rewarded with more, right? Um, so, I mean, you might be familiar with the marshmallow test. So, yeah, I think that's a nice example. Yeah, thank you. Well, it might be interesting to even sort of walk through the structure of the book itself. You don't want to give too much away because, obviously, as I've said, people still need to go out and buy it. We won't be able to get into the depth here. But you start by talking about the idea of a sort of Darwinian philosophy. Why do you think that Darwinian perspective is a useful way to sort of set the stage and approach this issue? Yeah, I mean, I'm obviously inspired by philosophers like Paul Griffiths and Peter Godfrey Smith as my advisors who have been Darwinian philosophers and worked very thoroughly in the philosophy of biology. But I think I was already convinced before coming here, uh, especially I was influenced by Daniel Dennett and he gave a talk once at an animal consciousness conference at the NYU where he said complexity matters, but what kind of complexity? So we have to really answer what kind of complexity makes consciousness worth having. The problem you see with theories of consciousness like integrated information theory of consciousness, it says, look, once you have this particular kind of integrated information complexity, then you get consciousness. It doesn't really answer what the evolutionary benefit here is for this unity of experience. In fact, I try to counter this in my book uh, with several arguments. And one is that we actually see some animals like reptiles and fish, which in the course of their evolution actually had their brain halves becoming very much more lateralized. They're operating almost, I mean, independently, not really, but much more than other animals uh, from each other. And we might think, look, this might be a case where we could have two distinct streams of subjective experience. Of course, one of the most speculative cases. From an evolutionary perspective, it might well make sense that these challenges these animals face in their environments are very different, that could give rise to very different kinds of experience, which is why I wouldn't accept the charge of anthropomorphism, because I'm really trying to challenge us to think about very different ways experience might be organized in beings evolutionary far away from us. So in the beginning of my book, I really make the case that when we have all these different theories of consciousness that don't seem testable, that all fail to make really meaningful predictions, we need an approach that narrows all these attempts to answer this question as as well as more scientific theories, but also more metaphysical views such as panpsychism, that every the mental could be everywhere and the like, think of illusionism. And here my approach can give us a kind of, yeah, Darwinian bottleneck, Eva Blanca and Simona Ginsburg used this fra phrasing as well, where it can help us to think about what the most plausible ways of thinking are about consciousness. And it can help us then to understand it better and develop better scientific ways of studying it yeah and it's and it strikes me that it's interesting because it I, that bottleneck for me works well because i'm a sort of materialistically minded naturalistic person you know i think i'm an evolved animal amongst many that story is compelling to me so in a sense everything about me ultimately is a product of evolution there's much complexity there and you can layer on culture and rationality and all sorts of other things but even those are grounded in uh, and ultimately a Darwinian evolutionary process. So with my way of thinking, that works because there needs to be some evolutionary 
context for everything about me. Ultimately, it may not explain the whole story, but there needs to be some story. So in that context, it just fits that my consciousness, my sentience also needs to have an evolutionary story for it to hang together. I guess that's what's meant by that bottleneck. I agree completely. So philosophers very rarely ask the question, where does the mind come from, right? We want to understand what is the mind, how does it work? But the question of its origin is almost treated as this independent third question that we may or may not answer. It's not that important. It's completely separate. But from a Darwinian perspective, that's utterly misguided in order to understand how it works. We'll have to understand why it evolved, what benefits it conferred to the animals that had it. And similarly, we can only understand what consciousness is really in trying to understand how it evolved. So these questions aren't independent at all. So the origins relate to the, our understanding of what the phenomenon is. Um, and I guess there's also a, some form of parallel between the evolutionary process and, and even the developmental process of animals in the course of an individual life. You could, you could argue there's some sort of analogy there about how, these, how this phenomenon comes to be. But there are people who will, you've hinted at some of them already, who will want to sidestep that bottleneck in various ways. So one obviously is the sort of more supernatural approach where you say, well, souls are embedded through some magical means by a supernatural being. There are broader sort of dualistic approaches which say, well, okay, on the one side you have this sort of a materialistic universe that in a biological sense is subject to evolution, but then separately there are either these characteristics or even this other realm of stuff that is distinct in some way, albeit linked. Um, there are others, even when in a sort of more materialistic mindset, who will talk about consciousness and sentience as, as, as if they're epiphenomena. So they try to sort of have their cake and eat it too by saying, look, this thing is intrinsically bound up with the physical and with the evolutionary process, but it's still a distinct separate thing that seems to have no causal linkage with the physical stuff. And then, as you say, you'll have the panpsychist stance, which in a, in a sense, posits consciousness in some form as being pre-evolution. Right? It's, it's like a primordial foundational phenomena that existed before, certainly before biological evolution even kicked in. And again, there's just too much, right? There's like thousands of papers on this stuff. But what, what's your sense about those different ways of thinking about consciousness? And yeah, I mean, one way of thinking about it is Marion Dawkins, for instance, I've talked about with her about this a lot because she served as something of an informal advisor on my thesis and helped me also with the book, gave me advice on it. And in her recent work on animal consciousness, I mean, you might have been aware of the shift where originally she argued, look, we, we need a science of animal consciousness. This is important for animal welfare. And more recent work, she's come to endorse a much more skeptical approach. And I think this is largely owed due to this this almost attitude that anything goes in the literature. You see all these different views and it doesn't seem like we're making any progress on what is true. It seems like we're just creating new outlandish views uh, without yeah, having any means of trying to filter them out. So things like panpsychism, for instance, right? And in the popular discourse and even sometimes in the academic discourse, it's very common for people to say, we know nothing about consciousness. Which I find I bizarre. I find it a bizarre statement because we know an enormous amount about consciousness. No, that is that is true. Like this, we've we've made so much scientific progress, but I guess 
the objection is unless we have something like an ultimate theory, we've settled that question, we don't know anything. And that's clearly wrong. Unuseful distinction here might be between a high-level theoretical approach where we settle something like a theory that captures all the evidence we have. But in order to do this, clearly we already have to recognize that there's already evidence. So we already know some things, even if this knowledge might be very scattered and not fit well together yet in like this more theoretical work. And then you have enough different theories to try to account for this in different ways. Different theories will discard some of the evidence, whereas others will emphasize some is more important. But clearly, we have done a lot of experiments and we've really made progress. And now in the animal case, we have reached the same as most status, where we have a battery of experimental paradigms, really, where we can probe the subjective experience of other animals. That doesn't mean we have anything like a proof but it means we have something like a best guess of what a subjective experience is like, and at least moving away from the very highly yeah, concept-driven understanding of consciousness that it's involved in having these higher order representations. I think that view is becoming less and less popular. Then again, you have books written like Sentience with Oxford University Press that try to push that kind of view. We almost feel like the word sentience is used because it has become so popular in recent times, but it's not really about feeling. It's it's just a placeholder term for a very abstract kind of particular human, we can say mental uniqueness, but of course there's some mental properties that are unique to humans, but it's very unclear those are the ones that matter for moral purposes, right? Yeah. And I'm yeah. sure you would agree with that. I would, yeah. yeah. I'm interested in, so what is your story about the origins of sentience and consciousness then? How, how, do, you, how do you think this phenomenon, whatever it is, did come into existence? Can you sort of summarize that story? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I guess this will be a bit of a longer answer, but I'm sure it's fine. Um, so one thing that I try to advocate in the book is that when we take a Darwinian approach to complex phenomena, you know, it is adaptationist because very complex phenomena don't just appear out of nowhere. They almost always have a functional role. They are not just spandrels of evolution, some accidental byproduct. Some capacity like consciousness is just far too complex and evolutionary fine-tuned for that to happen. In our own experience, we can see how well it helps us to understand some things, at least, um, even if it sometimes can misfire. But that's perfectly adequate. Um, nevertheless, we move away from an approach to consciousness that treats it as this all-or-nothing property that is either there or not. And I think that's part of the problem with panpsychism. Those who defend it are kind of convinced that consciousness is either there or not. There's nothing in between. And then if you can't explain how it can gradually come into existence, you must believe that it has always been there. Um, so in a way, I can very much understand the panpsychist point of view. It just, com it just combines the view that consciousness couldn't have gradually emerged with the view um, that it is nevertheless there. And then one view of responding to it is to say it must have been there before. Um, and then it might change, become more complex um, with evolution of more complex animals. But nevertheless, like a basic capacity for subjective experience would have been there, even if minimal. But my gradualism, I think, is a bit more radical than that, where I want to say, look, 
no, it, it makes no sense to treat consciousness as this all or nothing property at all. We have to think about something like quasi-consciousness. Then it uses terms like hemi-demi-semi-minds that would have come into being way before the kinds of minds we associated um, with rich human minds, but obviously more like evolutionary latecomer products. So they are very close um, to Dan Dennett and Peter Godfrey Smith, who really want to advocate a kind of approach where we think about what might be in between male matter without any mindedness and then kind of quasi-mind, a kind of quasi-experience that we wouldn't call consciousness. We wouldn't say these organisms have experience, but we, we would deny that they have none either. Like there's something in between. And admittedly, it's hard to think about this. But I mean, so is our paradoxes in philosophy, like uh, how many hairs do you need on your head before you count as bald and the like? It's just hard to think about these uh, gradual questions. And I'm not sure if it, this quite fits, but it does seem to me that it's another one of these very broad class of problems where on the one hand there's the real world and on the other hand there are human concepts and we obviously want to understand and apply those concepts to the real world and we love concepts that are well-bounded well-defined clear and crisp and that we can work with and we might come back to this later on but it does seem to me this is part of the tension between the sort of world of science and the world of philosophy and that the world of philosophy you know, it wants the definition, it wants the clarity, it wants the boundedness, it wants the conceptual integrity. And then science goes, okay, but the real world is just a bit of a mess. And and we often, I think, find this tension where I'm not saying concepts aren't useful. Of course, they're useful, but we can't assume the clarity that we put in a formal system that defines concepts will necessarily map perfectly to the messy. I completely agree. And when we try too hard to force it, that's when we get some of these weird side effects whereas if we just acknowledge that you know consciousness isn't some magical distinct phenomenon it's really a term that we use to describe a particular class of things then that relaxes somewhat you know how 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 much we try and force it onto a physical reality no i I agree with this completely Uh, i think philosophy suffers from this ambition to have these clear-cut concepts that capture nature and its joints and can just carve it neatly but when you look at biological science that whereas the mathematicians don't bother right they, they're quite happy in their formal systems well and they can get exactly. the clarity there. it works philosophers want the same kind of clarity though for concepts applying to the real world but when you look at sciences like biology cognitive science the boundaries are just far too messy it's not that we are bad at doing those sciences but it's the fact that nature itself has unclear boundaries. There are gradations. Usually when you have biological concepts, they're not just a binary. They are on a continuum. Think of, for instance, in life history, the difference between K and R species. It doesn't make sense to think of them as a binary. It's like it's a genuine kind of continuum that we can help to use to understand the world. Um, but even that is an abstraction and idealization. And there's a lot of different ways life history strategies can vary in the natural world. And as I'll argue, at least in my book, that is relevant for understanding consciousness. Um, so I try to engage in a kind of conceptual engineering process where I try to use the sciences to 
recover what makes sense about these folk concepts we have of consciousness, but also revise them in light of science, just how we might have changed our understanding of what uh, matter or gravity means in light of modern physics. Uh, so concepts can be revised in light of science and consciousness shouldn't be an exception here. Yeah, makes sense. And it, it, again, it's a little bit trite to say, but on one extreme, you can just deconstruct everything and say, look, ultimately everything is just you know, vectors in a multidimensional Hilbert space or we're all just a soup of quarks, right? It's like, okay, you've given up on understanding anything really because everything is just reduced to minimal level the other the other extreme is just to reify our concepts and pretend they're real and there clearly is some middle ground of recognizing there are different levels of organization in the real world we have concepts that fit in various ways but we might just have to keep struggling precisely i mean just like biologists have meaningful concepts like species that aren't perfectly clear-cut they're still useful and real categories and we we need them to understand the natural world if we were to ask for only clear-cut concepts and anything else doesn't work well then there's no way of uh, really making progress i think it makes more sense to have these fuzzy boundary concepts even if it's very difficult i mean think of ethics ethics is of course not really a discipline um that is at least historically, that closely associated to the sciences. And we usually try to have very clear-cut rules or principles that are exceptionless. But uh, even, I mean, obviously, if you take this Darwinian naturalist approach, we probably need more fuzzy ways of thinking here. Like think, for instance, of... Uh, when we do research and will inevitably perhaps have to use some animals here to test some drugs, do we use a chimpanzee or do we use 20 rats? Will one experience more suffering? Uh, perhaps it's outweighed by the sheer number of, of, uh, of mice or rats that have perhaps less subjective experience in chimpanzee, but more in total. Very complex questions we have to address. And ethics, I think, some in, at least in the past, has shied away from these trade-off questions, um, which is why I am at least very attracted to utilitarianism, because it provides us with the means to answer the questions that are perhaps the most complex, where there's trade-offs between different criteria. So given that we, we're not sort of reifying the concepts of consciousness and sentience, we're not pretending we can clarify them in some perfect crystalline way, but we're not giving up on them either, right? We still think they're relevant uh, concepts. And I guess at the very earliest stages of the evolution of life, we don't think there was either, and now there's us. What stage in the biological evolutionary history of our planet did these phenomena start to occur, those fuzzy edges? And what was it that made these phenomena start to emerge in the first place? And how early was it? Yeah, like, like other philosophers and scientists like Godfrey Smith, Evia Blanca, Simona Ginsberg, I've argued that the origins of this minimal consciousness probably arose at the beginnings of the Cambrian 541 million years ago. Why there? Well, what we saw there is this explosion of, of different animal forms of life, much more complex body plants that just suddenly seem to pop into existence and quickly 
most of them went extinct again. But this really raises the question why we suddenly explored such a vast range of the design space. And my answer has been that sentience as a kind of capacity for evaluation enabled organisms to have an efficient means to deal with action selection, a kind of common currency of evaluation that is akin to fitness and provides them with this proximate common currency for decision-making. It's a very bantamite idea, of course, a utilitarian psychology, where this kind of real psychological utility function can help organisms to deal with trade-offs in their own decisions. And once you have that, suddenly you can add more legs, arms, more complex sensory organs onto organisms, and they can almost immediately pay off in terms of how organisms learn to find new niches in the natural world, new ways where they can derive fitness benefits. And all this can pay off because it's nicely integrated in this way. So when I talk of action, I usually mean a, a teleonomic goal-directed sense of function, some functional activities that are ex the exclusion of others. Often you get this debate now about whether plants have sentience because they have these complex cognitive capacities. But we can agree with all of this, recognize that they have this um, developmental plasticity, but they're not really engaging in action in this sense of functional um, activities going on at the exclusion of others where decisions have to be made, what action to engage in, where plants are much more broadly distributed with this decision-making taking place in different cells and everything is operating in tandem, parallel, there's not really something like a decider. This is where we get um, sentience in the animal case, where more, more complex animals emerge with a recognizable animal lifestyle, an animal life history strategy, where animals move around in the natural world, act, become agents. And here we find sentience as a tool for agents to make better decisions. Yeah, so it's, it's it comes from, I guess, the complexity of the animals themselves, but also, the, I guess, the complexity of their decision-making environment that needs to be rich enough and multi-dimensional enough for it to be useful to have this sense of value. This, I guess, sometimes described sentence is just this sense of how are things going for me now and now and now and, and helping you take ultimately adaptive decisions. And, and I guess that's your concept of the, the pathological complexity idea, because the one thing is there needs to be a certain degree of complexity. And the pathological thing is, and it's got to be serious stuff, right? This is about your ability to survive and replicate and reproduce. And, um, and it's that combination that gives this the importance to this capacity to have valence, which is sentience and feeling. Yeah, the core thesis of my book is called the pathological complexity thesis that consciousness evolved to help organisms deal with the pathological complexity they are faced with. And how can we understand pathological complexity? It's simply the life history complexity of the evolved strategies different species pursue. So it's a kind of, now I have a background in economics, perhaps that's part of why I'm the first of framing it in this way. But when you think about Life history theory, it's a kind of economic decision theory applied to species design. You think about animals as if they are economic agents, where they have to make trade-offs between, say, having a shell or not having a shell, having longer claws or not. You have to derive benefits for making investments into these different states. And here, 
hydron life history theory as the theory about these organismal trade-offs. And if you expand this to include internal states and behavior, sometimes called state-based behavioral and state-based and behavioral life history theory, you really get this expansive theory of the organism and all its, of its activities as a kind of economic trade-off problem solving. And then when you think about utility as something that helps organisms to solve the decision problems in their own lives in each and every moment, then you can see how using this framework can help us to understand how we got from here, from these basic Darwinian design trade-offs to organisms themselves requiring something like a proximate common currency with which they themselves made decisions to get this complexification of agency with agency gradually becoming more complex, organisms become less object-like, more like subjects. And this, I think, really helps us to get rid of this explanatory gap um, that it doesn't seem all that mysterious now to think of objects on one side and subjects on the other. But it's a gradual process of evolutionary time that makes organisms more agent-like. Back to the philosophy of mind thing. One challenge, because I think many people would accept that story and say, look, I can see why this you know, centralized decision-making process and so on had adaptive value. And I probably agree with you that it's, you can see it in the nervous systems of these, all, all of these beings. And ultimately, it's a, if we think of computational information processing in a very broad sense, it's just you know, a class of information processing in that sense that's in this complex environment, helping these organisms to take decisions based on how well things are going for them. And then they'll say, but why does it have to feel like something? Can you imagine an alternative evolutionary path where that decision-making capability still played that adaptive role and yet the subject didn't have the experience that you and I are having now? I think there's, there's two basic responses. One is to say, look, consciousness is just what it feels like from the inside to have these very complex evaluative mechanisms that require common currency where organisms evaluate the world and i think something like this is just true about the biological systems we have around us it's almost just a brute fact this is how it happens to feel right to run this class of information process. however i as a biologist or philosopher of biology excuse me at least I'm fairly confident that it's in principle possible to have similar mechanisms that could do a similar thing without sentience. It's just a matter of fact that sentient organisms evolved. Now, when we think of, for instance, the human evolution of more complex forms of evaluation, where we don't just eat the Snickers bar or ice cream presented in front of us, right, because it has this overwhelming sense of Oh, that looks tasty. I want to eat that. But rather, um, but I have this abstract goal. I need to lose some weight for uh, a wedding picture seven months from now. So, and my wife won't like it if I don't lose that weight to fit into the expensive suit we bought. That has nothing to do with basic hedonic calculation. That was a hypothetical situation. Well, who knows? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, we actually have planned a wedding me and Tedder. So maybe the only sentientists on your podcast are actually getting married. Maybe there will be more in the future. That's wonderful. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Congratulations. Episodes 48 and 54 come together and not quite, not quite holy matrimony, but matrimony. Yeah, that's right. Maybe we need a joint podcast one day. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Let's do it. 
Yeah. But I think this is the objection many make to utilitarianism that there are a lot of evaluative decisions we make that don't seem to fit into this hedonic way of thinking. And I think that is that is fine. And also shows that perhaps evolution could have solved some problems in a different way. But even in the human case, these two evaluative systems constantly come into conflict and evolution doesn't just get rid of one to replace it with this. Perhaps, perhaps it's better, perhaps it is better, but that's not how evolution works. It's it's set on a foundation of this basic hedonic capacity, maybe across evolutionary time. Humans will become less hedonic and become more abstract, perhaps in this sense. And I think already this has somewhat happened. If you think about our sensory capacities compared to dogs and many other animals, obviously they're really poor. Vision, if you ask a peregrine falcon uh, to find some particular object from, I don't know, kilometers away, they could find it. Humans obviously can't. So clearly we're already aware that in many of the dimensions of consciousness, humans are way worse than other animals. But then why couldn't this have happened to the hedonic side as well? Perhaps some animals have greater hedonic capacities than humans. Maybe an elephant can experience greater extent of pleasure and pain. I think that's entirely possible. To deny that, I think, would just be anthropocentrism. Uh, that kind of human uniqueness uh, or scala natura way of thinking where humans always have to land on top. I don't think that's very plausible. And I think that's almost gives us more reason to protect animals because I don't think that the hedonic capacities are that far off from humans. Nevertheless, my framework in virtue of drawing on life history complexity gives us a way of potentially assessing these welfare ranges for different animals in virtue of how complex these economic decision problems are these animals are faced with and if you have more complex problems to solve that are more that are involve more dimensions it's plausible that they have a greater welfare range they have to make more trade-offs they need to have a more fine-grained way of of assigning value to different things but if your decision problems are fairly easy to solve it just doesn't make sense for evolution to maintain this complexity of your evaluative capacities it's per because this capacity costs something, right? You need more brain cells, a more complex nervous system, and then it would quickly become reduced over evolutionary time. And nevertheless, I don't think that when you look at the decision problems insects even have to solve, that they are that far off from those of a rat, despite being so much smaller. Their actions, their engagement with the natural world is fairly similar. Yeah. So again, you take that life history view, and that gives you a better sense than yeah i mean what you do see is much more complex memory capacities in some animals and this will then also be associated with remembering the the values of these different perhaps food items but nevertheless the basic decision problems i think are really what drives the very origins of sentience and then this capacity can become more complex right if you have this basic capacity of evaluating things like a plus and minus quickly you would gain richer representational capacities where you get sensory experiences that are assigned values. Theories of consciousness based on the sensory side often struggle to explain why some representations are felt and others aren't. And I think it's precisely because of that, because we know that so many representations in the brain are unconscious. If we base a theory of consciousness on the hedonic 
um, side, we can explain why some of these representations are felt because they play a crucial role in this final decision-making process that sometimes operates. I'm not saying any and all decisions animals are engaged in involves that, not at all. But some complex trade-off decisions uh, force animals to engage in this decision-making. Yeah, thank you. And you touched on there already the, the idea of this sort of potential richness and the complexity of the environment and the life history may well change you know, the richness and the many dimensions of our consciousness and sentience. And I also re- heard you on the, I think it was the Do Explain podcast recently, and you made an interesting point there as well, because you were talking to someone who was putting what I think of as a very extreme stance that actually it's it's only human level creativity and knowledge production that implies sentience and consciousness. And their stance was that non human animals are not sentient at all, um, which I think is a fairly rare sort of Descartian perspective. You made a really interesting point that actually because of the cognitive capabilities of certain animals and humans um, and, and our rational capabilities, that may actually mean we need, we rely less on the sort of raw hedonic valence because we can rationalise and take decisions in different ways. Whereas there might be a counter argument to this sort of idea that you know, humans have the richest possible sentience that actually some of the simpler animals may be more driven by more intense, direct, hedonic experiences because they don't have the rational capability to make decisions without it. So, yeah, as much humility required here about, you know, are we at the top of the scale and matura? <laughs> exactly. And of course, it also confuses sentience with consciousness. This is all or nothing thing. Like, I, I don't really see why creativity would involve a hedonic system necessarily. I mean, but be that as it may, uh, it is once you have picked out this one property you think consciousness is necessary for, you can't do it without it. I can see why then some researchers or consciousness theorists would associate that unique property with something um, that makes consciousness necessary, and but before that, it's completely useless. So you can at least understand perhaps where they're coming from, where when you think about the most minimal senses of sentience, it's obviously much more easy to say, look, why does this have to be solved with consciousness? Why is it necessary for it and the like? Um, but if you think about the most basic subjective experiences, um, I don't think the objection really holds because consciousness isn't that complex anymore. It's not that costly it would be a very basic capacity that does have to pay for itself, of course, but it's not something um, so inherently complex that it needs to enable animals to do all these other kind of things like engage in self-reflection, have very rich kinds of memory and the like. That's all things consciousness might eventually help you with. But when you look at the... And our brains, there's a constant struggle between putting things from a kind of foreground processing that is perhaps consciously experienced back in the background because you, you don't want to have as much as possible in front of you. You wouldn't be able to make any decisions in any efficient manner. You couldn't have conscious organisms where all of the information processing is experienced. That just wouldn't work. Yeah. Should, should my heart beat now? Should it be now? Should it be next? Yeah, I don't want that to be conscious. (laughs) Yeah. And the same applies to humans. Once we have these abstract 
ways of evaluating things. It just isn't that important to have these hedonic evaluations anymore. In fact, they can often conflict with our other goals then, right? Like studying for an exam versus watching your favorite TV show that was released on that day might be this conflict of interests, your proximate hedonic interests and your long-term rational interests. And philosophers, obviously, for 2,000 years have known this conflict, a crazier, weakness of will. And this can happen. For animals, perhaps this conflict doesn't occur as much. There could be a sense in which they are uh, injuring their long-term interests, but it's not like they're aware of that necessarily. Right. And this is where animal welfare scientists might come in and say, look, it would be great to give animals always the foods they most prefer. But in the long term, that might not be the best for their health, that they might get diseases, uh, they might feel much worse, they might have nutritional imbalances and the like. Um, nevertheless, send to understand what animals feel what they derive pleasure from, what harms them, what causes them displeasure is obviously the core of what we have to focus on in order to improve the lives of animals and decrease suffering. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So that's been really helpful to understand, I guess, where those early origins of sentience and consciousness were. And you've talked already about the enormous potential richness that can get layered onto that. I also like the fact that you're quite interested in sort of breaking it down to different capacities and different pieces that we can understand that may make this whole make sense. And you talk in the book about the five dimensions of consciousness. It'd be interesting just to run through those because it will give people a sense of, um, you know, how, how you round this out, because I think it's very clear that that sort of basic level valence sentience is absolutely core to you. And, um, you know, I think the most morally salient part, Yeah. but, but what are those other dimensions that, Sure. So while I was writing my PhD thesis, Jonathan Birch, together with Nicola Clayton and Alex Schnell, the latter two are biologists, and, uh, and Jonathan is a philosopher, published this nice paper, Dimensions of Animal Consciousness, where they argued, in order to study animal consciousness, we have to go away from this all-or-nothing approach and study really the different components of experience. And they made a rough suggestion of distinguishing five different dimensions. On the one side, I've already mentioned it, evaluative experience, feeling things as good or bad, making complex evaluations and the like. Then we have sensory capacity, sensory consciousness. I argued that this is a secondary feature that would quite quickly in evolutionary time at least evolve once you have this evaluative capacity to enrich this decision-making skills. Then we have selfhood capacities. Think of um, theory of mind. Um, embodied cognition, where you feel yourself as an, as an agent in the world, as something distinct from other systems, and a minimal form of the selfhood would quickly evolve once you have these sensory capacities in turn, where you could distinguish yourself from others. And then more complex forms would come on top and help animals further to make better decisions. And then finally... And, and that makes sense, because if you can't distinguish yourself from the environment, it's going to be difficult for you to take decisions that will help you survive i guess no that's right i mean you wouldn't want to eat your leg because it tastes so good yeah right yeah. <laughs> um but if you're a predator uh it might work in a sense so i mean you get pathological cases where obviously animals might engage in biting themselves and the like but that's 
almost always pathological and obviously not fitness enhancing. There might um, get a mismatch here. Um, for instance, some snails um, would eat their own offspring if it wasn't for the fact that they release some chemicals that make them not hungry around the time they lay their eggs. Um, and you might think, well, maybe then they don't actually have those subjective experiences, but perhaps that is suppressing the feeling of hunger. So it's not at all clear whether giving a neuroscientific explanation means that there is no subjective experience going on. In fact, I think consciousness just is um, all this neuroscience or all this um, neurological cognitive, all these neurological cognitive processes going on as they experience from the inside. I think that's a nice way of putting it. So I, I'm a bit close here to sort of Australian materialist view where the, the mind is just the brain, right? But then to mention the two other dimensions before we forget that, um, we can consider them as two dimensions of unity. One is synchronic unity, how unified is consciousness at a time? Think of all these different sensory experiences. You might think there could be different streams of experience separated, like in the case of fish or reptiles that have very lateralized brains. Perhaps they have two streams of experiences where they focus on different tasks, which might confer them with interesting evolutionary benefits. There's already lots of uh, data that we've accumulated that lateralized brain processing does provide evolutionary benefits because you don't have this one process that has to solve everything, but you can um, have division of labor, just like in a company, when you don't give all the tasks to one person or, or all the same tasks to, to one person at least, but you split them off, you specialize. And that has benefits typically. Just as, just as a tangent, do you, do you think it's conceptually possible that there might be multiple consciousnesses inside our brain, but the one that is talking now isn't aware of the other one. So maybe there is some mm. form of consciousness that is beating my heart and expanding my lungs and, you know, do, doing other processes. I think it's at least conceptually possible. Um, yeah. Now, I am fairly skeptical about it in the human brain because our evolution has largely been one of our brain halves becoming more and more unified in the sense of, lots of connections, uh, lots of um, task switching going on and doesn't seem plausible there. But if you have cases um, like these operations where the brain halves are separated to um, as a treatment wasn't once used in the past to deal with, um, what is the epilepsy. term? Epilepsy, yeah. thanks so much. Um, there, I think it's very plausible that you do get two streams of experiences. So I think it's entirely possible. I just don't think that a healthy human brain is operating like that. But then I think fishes and reptiles are very close to that case. Now, typically, we've only discussed birds in relation to that because they have these very lateralized brains. But if you think of birds as evolving from reptiles, then their evolution really has been very similar to that of the human brain where the two brain halves have become much more connected again. So I think looking at them is actually, yeah, the wrong really animal, the model organism that we should look on, whereas reptiles and fishes, their history has been one of lateralization of their brain halves. And I think they're very similar then to this, to this case of, uh, of these uh, uh, operations in the human case. And I think we might here find natural experiments where 
divided brains, divided subjective experience streams might confer their own benefits. Because if humans evolve to have this unified brain, then obviously cutting it in half, I mean, almost not completely, is not going to be that helpful to deal with the tasks humans are typically engaged in. Nevertheless, there might be some curious skills we might find in such patients that they could otherwise not engage with. So studying pathological cases in a human case can help us to think about um, where we might find benefits. For instance, have you heard of aphantasia before? Yeah. Yeah. So aphantasia typically is defined as this absence of mental imagery, right? If you close your eyes, you can't just remember what a burger tasted like or smelled like. Um, or looked like. Now, it's not an all and off matter. Again, that's not how I see consciousness. Most humans can have this visual imagery, but remembering smells or tastes or uh, sounds is typically much harder. So you might find yourself on, on these different dimensions of aphantasia. Um, and I am fairly poor on the visual side. Um, imagining things with color and the like. Think it's more of abstract forms of line work. Um, and they've done ex interesting experiments in the recent past where um, people with aphantasia and those without it have been asked to remember a scenery. And those with aphantasia, in fact, had less errors, but were less able to describe it in, in a very visual manner. They left out colors and visual detail. It's almost like a concentration on the facts. So perhaps you get a kind of confabulation where when you just try to remember what it looked like, um, the brain can come up with a lot of things that it weren't actually there, whereas those with Avantasia have to rely on a more um, abstract semantic memory that just memorizes the facts about what they saw, and then they reconstruct it and have um, less errors but that's one advantage, perhaps. A second one is that aphantasia um, patients, which is perhaps just the wrong term, given that no one with aphantasia goes into hospital, are able to deal much better with something like post-traumatic stress disorder. So aphantasic soldiers don't seem to suffer from these kinds of anxiety attacks. And perhaps that makes a lot of sense because they wouldn't be able to relive those experiences, right? They wouldn't dream about them in the same way. So you might have these benefits of very different kinds of experience. And it's a big mistake to think about human consciousness as the perfect way consciousness could be organized. You now, we find a lot of human neurodiversity um, where different ways of experiencing the world can provide you with advantages, disadvantages, and the like. Uh, that isn't to deny that there are very pathological cases where you get real problems in dealing with the world, in, in making good decisions and so forth. But certainly there's much more diversity than philosophers of mind have uh, given credit to, which is perhaps unsurprising given how philosophical methodology often just was just based on the intuitions of one person, right? Just someone introspecting into their own mind and declaring those as insights into necessity of what minds must be like. And that's clearly a methodological error. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. I should let you finish the dimensions as well. Uh, finally. Yeah, so yeah final, sorry, that was a fascinating The fifth one tangent, uh, would yeah. be the experience of time. So it's an experience across time. An experience can be more or less unified across there. Um, so I think with aphantasia, where you're less able to relive past experiences, I certainly sometimes feel like I am less 
connected to past selves. Uh, it's a kind of, um, you might say, look, I lack agency of some sort. Uh, it's a, but again, I, I don't think it's useful ever in philosophy to say, to talk about these binary categories. You can be more agent-like on one dimension and less in another. Um, obviously, given that humans have these abstract values, I am very much able to continue to exist as a, as a being across time with similar goals. Uh, they don't disappear. They might just not exist in a kind of hedonic way um, necessarily. Um, and it certainly also raises the question whether it's even helpful um, to have stay consistent across time. After all, our hedonic preferences can change dramatically over time. Now, I'm sure a lot of things you enjoyed a lot as a kid, you no longer enjoy now, whereas there's other things you probably still like, like some food um, perhaps your grandmother made for you. There's still like a very positive emotion attached to that and so forth. But yeah, thinking about these dimensions of experience, and I'm not saying those are anything like final ones. In the future, we might come up with more distinctions. And I didn't want to include any further dimensions because it would lead to this yeah, useless debate about trying to determine what the final dimensions are now before we've done the actual empirical research, right? As we do more research, I'm sure we'll come to the conclusion that it will be worthwhile to distinguish more dimensions and so forth. But right now, to get rid of this all or nothing, one uh, absent or present view of consciousness, lights on or off, I think here, thinking about these five dimensions is really helpful. And I think these unity aspects of experience, experience across time, the unification of experience at a time, are also latecomer features of consciousness, as Godfrey Smith might put it. It's ways experience can be organized and perhaps are very integral to how experience is organized and experienced in the human case. But that's not a necessity about how experience must be organized across the entire branch of animal life. Yeah, makes sense. Thank you. That really helps to sort of broaden out a sense of what consciousness is and what it's like to experience it. One thing I did want to ask you about is you're thinking about the potential for artificial intelligence sentience. Because on the one hand, you know, we have a sort of naturalistic, quite materialistic approach that really says what we're talking about is a class of information processing, broad, very broadly defined, you know, not in terms of digital computing necessarily, but in terms of a very broad sense of processing of information, that's all it is, which naturally would lead you to think quite positively about the possibility of artificially intelligent sentient beings. But at the same time, an evolutionary approach is clearly radically different from, you know, what we see in modern artificial intelligence as well. So what's your thinking about the potential for artificial sentience. I agree with, uh, with you there. I mean, what I said could be seen as like either supporting the AI consciousness case or providing at least evidence against it. A lot of the recent work that was evolution inspired tried to emphasize the wetware of how brains are organized in animals. It might just be given how biological and neurological matters organized, we wouldn't get it in the machine case. Now that's possible. I'm actually not that in favor of it. It's certainly possible that that would be the case. But I think as we understand more about the brain, I think it would be entirely possible to build these kinds of robots. Perhaps we would need robots that are more like the kind of wetware we associate with humans. Perhaps there needs to be 
storms of electricity, kind of information transport over, um, yeah, kind of more water-based information transport. I'm not sure how that would look in detail. Um, but certainly, if you think about the most popular theory of consciousness when it comes to AI, integrated information theory of consciousness, certainly was very much motivated by trying to give us uh, a measure of complexity that has nothing to do with biological systems that's completely neutral about substrates and then can be used to assess whether a robot might be conscious. The problem with that, of course, is, as I've argued in a paper with Heather Browning, that there's no way of verifying whether this measure of complexity is actually capturing consciousness. Um, it's just an assertion, and perhaps we could cover some of the evidence that comes out of consciousness research, but given how that based on abstract a priori principles, they also discount some of the evidence and discard it. It's very unclear how you could evaluate one theory over another. And my pathological complexity framework was kind of inspired by this idea of, yes, a simple definition of complexity would be very useful for research, but it needs to be connected to biology, at least in one sense. And that is to the goal-directed teleonomic complexity organisms are faced with. Now, you might think that's a unique problem for biological systems because only living systems are interested in maximizing their reproductive fitness. But in essence, it's merely a measure of complexity about the achievement of goals, right? So organisms have to deal with trade-offs in order to achieve these goals. But in principle, we could change the goal here, right? So if you have a complex AI system, that system might have a very different goal. We might have computed it into the system. They might have generated that themselves. And even today, you know, this is, may seem silly to say, but GPT-4 at least has the goal of responding to your prompt. So, and and it's, it's trivially easy to program in or to develop much richer goals than that too. Yeah. I think in biological systems, we all, in a way, almost have a harder time because it's it's hard to see how organisms actually implement these different strategies in order to achieve this goal of fitness maximization. We have to engage in a lot of complex empirical work in order to understand this. We have to engage in modeling and the like. And often we find surprising new things about why animals do some things, right? But in the machine case, we have at least one advantage. We clearly know what their ultimate goal here is and how they are designed in order to achieve that. Now, some forms of artificial intelligence that involve a lot of learning that that we don't really understand how they work, they might move away from this, right? So there we might not understand how they operate in detail. But it would still be true that they might have to deal with trade-offs, right? Now, one thing that makes me less optimistic is the fact that typically when we have artificial intelligence system, they typically have a very narrow goal, and then there aren't that many trade-offs they have to solve with. They're just really good at solving that problem, but it's very dissimilar from the problems animals have to deal with. So I'm not sure you've heard of Moravec's paradox. It's this idea that what we thought would be really hard for AI researchers to solve, beating humans at chess, replicating these high, uh, higher-order cognitive capacities of humans, that would be the most difficult task. In fact, it turns out it was really easy. It didn't take a lot of time to build 
um, machines that would that beat humans at those capacities. However, we still struggle to build robots that can walk a certain distance without falling. The robots that succeed have completely flat surfaces. If you put uh, obstacles in their way, they very much struggle to deal with them. Those kinds of problems were originally at the origins of AI research seen as oh, some really simple problems, which is where the researchers went that weren't as smart as the other AI researchers. But now I think the table has turned and we've come to realize that those abilities that natural selection fine-tuned over much longer time scales are actually the much harder ones to solve. So AI actually has played this integral role in how I thought about consciousness where I see a lot of the researchers emphasizing animal consciousness and not recognizing how complex it is to actually generate action at this multicellular level, to choose the right action over another. There's a lot of talk about how engagement with others could drive the evolution of richer sensory capacities. But at that point, you already have at least rudimentary sensory capacities, rudimentary forms of action. It's just that you start to engage with others. And this can certainly uh, lead to explosions in this kind of life history, pathological complexity that might make consciousness much more complex. But I don't think it captures the integral explosion of complexity at the very origins where you get more complex forms of action, where organisms have a way of better dealing with these bodies. And this is really where I think consciousness came into being. Yeah, thank you. No, that's that's really nice, Link. And, and my uh, amateur sense is that I'm very open-minded about the fact that maybe I think there are radically different things going on in my head to what's going on in my laptop. Like you said, ways of electricity, the wet wear, the physical dynamics. So I'm I'm very you know the, the sort of the brain is a computer thing is a, a little silly in that sense, but at the same time, my limited understanding of the science of computation and the idea of universal computability is that essentially once something is has a Turing machine capability, it can compute anything. So there is this sense that okay, these things might be radically different, but when you really dig to the root, you know. Ultimately, I think there probably is some substrate independence there about the information processing that's run running, even though they may be radically different at one level. And I think there's, but that idea that the things we thought of as simple are actually the most complex. Again, coming back to your idea of pathological complexity, and that's what drove the origins of sentience and consciousness. And that's why those things remain difficult for an artificial intelligence. I think is compelling. Um, and lots of people also talk about. The idea that for an artificial intelligence to become sentient, that's something I hope we don't create by accident or on purpose, given our track record with non-human sentience in other spheres. Uh, but putting that aside, that to do that, you might require some form of embodiment to replicate the evolutionary context that biological organisms have had. Um, and I think there's probably something in that, although Ultimately, even embodiment is just different streams of information inputs that arguably you could simulate even in an artificial environment. You can create artificial environments and put an artificial entity into those, and it might be embodied in a completely digital landscape. So, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm open-minded about I think Conceptually, I think it's something that's possible, but I think without either us deliberately designing or uh, an analogous evolutionary process that has those complexity of trade-offs. I don't think it's something that's going to happen unless those sorts of things are in place. But 
that creating the kind of body that's similar to the body that animals have to deal with will be integral to, to get to the kind of subjective experience that we would want to replicate that is similar to animals, right? We might create minds that are very different from how any living systems experience the world, right? Um, so I want to actually write a second volume, which is perhaps called A Philosophy for the Science of AI Consciousness. Um, maybe the title would be uh, too similar. We'll see about that. But the idea that we can take this design approach and think about what the benefits of different forms of experience are, I think will be very helpful to think about what kinds of experience would be useful to have for AI systems. And honestly, for the tasks we typically want to use AI for, I think subjective experience wouldn't add anything. Really, they are organized in such different ways. They're solving problems in different ways. It would be yeah, perhaps a mistake to try to make them as close to humans as possible to solve those problems. No, they're better at us, than us at many of those tasks precisely because they're organized in different ways, because they solve these cognitive problems in different ways. Now, at the beginnings of uh, robotics, people were very interested in building these human-like, very uh, uncanny machines that uh, would imitate human minds completely. Uh, but really now we've moved away from that. We're trying to build, I mean, maybe because it's so creepy, but I think another reason is that what would be the use of having robots that are exactly like us? What tasks could they solve that we can't? It's not really of interest, unless perhaps we think about the case of mind uploading, where we might think perhaps we could upload our minds to the extent that we might analyze the brain and create a, a, a digital or mechanical replica in terms of mach fancy machinery where similar minds come into existence. So I think in principle, this might be possible. Although I think um, the organization of such a system would still be very different from the human brain. Uh, and then on the other hand, I've recently written a commentary where you off very often, I mean, it's an old problem in the philosophy of mind, philosophy of cognitive science, where when you get technological revolutions, suddenly philosophers of mind are presented with a new model for how to think about the human mind. You start with uh, these ideas of the human mind being like a, a water mill, the inner machinery, and then you go on to more complex forms of machines like computers, of course, where very influential how to think about the minds in terms of computation and functionalism. And similarly now, when we have these very complex neural networks, the idea is, oh, well, I mean, given that they are successful at tasks, humans are successful, I guess the, the, the human mind then has also to implement those neural networks. But I think that sort of underappreciates the differences between those two systems. And as someone who writes about neurodiversity, I think it would be perfectly fine if, if these artificial systems have different minds. And this multidimensional approach to studying this experience across the animal branch of life, I think might be able to help us understand what these different minds of machines might be like if we create very complex artificial intelligences where that might not have any hedonic aspects of experience, but perhaps have a rich kind of unity where they, all the information processing 
is connected, whereas we often might forget what goes on in one part of the system versus another. Um, artificial systems might be much better at those memory capacities. And then we might create artificial intelligences that are very good at some things, very bad at others, and so forth, that would have very different minds. So once upon a time, we thought of consciousness as this one very narrow thing with this all or nothing property. If my approach will work, I think we'll come to expand it in this much more broader sense where we can think of uh, a lot of different kinds of minds existing in this multidimensional space. And then once we come perhaps to, to build these AI systems that have perhaps sentience in the future, we'll have a much broader multidimensional space where machines might occupy spaces extremely far away from the human mind, where it might not even make sense to speak of the same concept anymore, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they wouldn't also require moral protection or moral rights. So they could have some kind of quasi-sentience themselves, uh, which would be important to protect. But I am actually not that worried about this because I think in order to build sentient machines, we would have to require this kind of hedonic common currency, which would have to be built. And as we can say in the human case, this capacity is actually pretty bad to deal with long-term problems. And AIs don't just solve problems at one time. The, they typically are designed to provide the best solutions, no matter how long it takes to compute them, which is very different from the animal problem of coming up with a solution as fast as possible in order not to be killed or for a particular gain to be lost. So the problems are very dissimilar, but nevertheless, I think this design perspective can really help us to think about what the benefits would be of different kinds of mental properties. So that's a very long answer, but yeah, I hope it's helpful. Yeah, fascinating. Thank you. And I think, you know, it's clear that, you know, you can have goals without sentience, you can solve problems without sentience, you can be intelligent without sentience. Um, so yeah, that's the path I'd hope we go down is using the capabilities intelligently and mitigating the risks without accidentally or deliberately putting sentience into into these artificial minds until we understand how to ensure they have good li good lives and That's good experiences. Right. Yeah. So I mean you you might create a system that only has positive valence perhaps. I don't think that would be very useful because then they couldn't really calculate costs versus benefits perhaps in the best way. Um but perhaps that would still work in terms of lower benefits. Um, there might still be harms in virtue of them thinking, oh, very low levels of valence are bad. That's complex questions and involves a lot of speculation. It's not at all clear that if you create machines, they would have such bad lives necessarily if they have sentience, right? We might come to something like AI welfare science, where we try to come up with ways to measure their well-being similar to how we've created a science of animal welfare. Um, and that could be very useful for the future, right? Um, trying to think about what what AI wants and likes and giving it to, to it. Um, but yeah, a lot of uh, future work has to be done here. So there were two more things I was going to cover with you. One was we've talked about lots of very different approaches to philosophy and science of the mind that might disagree with the approach that you take. But I'm interested in where the debate is with the people who are sort of in your camp. So, again, I'm an amateur from the outside of this, but I interviewed Mark Solms, for example, who has a sort of evolutionary story about how sentience and consciousness came to exist and 
actually physiologically where it operates pretty close to the brainstem as opposed to in the prefrontal cortex. And he then follows the sort of Carl Friston free energy approach. Uh, but again, it's broadly an evolutionary story about very early and very widespread consciousness. Um, you've talked about Peter Godfrey Smith um, and some of the other people you've worked with before. Uh, there's obviously the unlimited associative learning approach of Jabronka uh, and Ginsberg as well. How is the debate in, I, I don't know if it's fair to say this, sort of roughly broadly in your camp, how is the debate moving there? My book is obviously coming out in what, three days from now. Um, one of the chapters was published as a target article in Biological Theory, where I got commentaries, one of which was by Simona Ginsburg and Nerea Blanca. Now, they associate the origins of consciousness with learning. They think consciousness really helped organisms to engage in richer forms of learning, where they could yeah, learn new associations in much better ways than previous organisms could. That's why they call it unlimited associative learning. Like Godfrey Smith, I think they think of consciousness as too rich of a phenomenon that involves a lot of different things, like very rich forms of evaluation, selfhood, embodiment, and a bunch of other properties. Whereas it's not at all clear to me that any of those, that the consciousness couldn't be found in almost a more simple form of consciousness in one of those dimensions, which is where I focus uh, on evaluative experience. So it might be similar, more similar here to Mark Soames. My disagreement largely lies here with the free energy principle. I don't really see how it does anything um, to explain why sentience is here. It's this very general framework, and I fail to see what benefit it provides us really um, you obviously can use all the metaphors associated with it that sound very nice of, of having the of having this physicalist account perhaps of consciousness where sentience plays some role but then if you look at the mathematics it's not at all clear where it explains consciousness it seems more like a the statisticalist approach that can perhaps help us to deal with a lot of data uh, and I'm sure a lot of the stories that are told around that kind of more basic modeling approach can be helpful. But I think the free energy principle is so abstract. It doesn't really tell us anything about the, the neural architecture of, of consciousness. It, it deliberately almost tries to abstract from that. And I think that would be a mistake as problems associated with, with it, like the darkroom problem. It's, it's just not true that organize, organisms try to minimize their predictive errors. They're not just going into dark caves to minimize their predictive error. Organisms are fundamentally interested in pursuing fitness maximization. And the free energy principle almost is like a rival here to Darwinism. Like it's just in a sense, another very abstract organizing principle to think about the mind, cognition, life. For someone who's very much a Darwinian philosopher, I have not yet seen the argument for why we should move away from the more basic Darwinian approach that is well understood, has a lot of, has an extremely rich history of past successes in explaining living phenomena, whereas, yeah, I don't really see that yet with the free energy principle. Nevertheless, the idea that we can solve the heart problem by focusing on the feeling aspects of consciousness. I completely am on board with that. In fact, I think it's a popular view among a lot of researchers that have mildly different proposals. And my approach here is most closely 
associated with Michel Kabanek. You might never have heard of him. He isn't really that featured in those debates, uh, but he very early argued that pleasure would constitute a kind of common currency for evaluation. He engaged a lot of experiments where he let uh, rats engage in evaluate motivational trade-offs, moving through different pathways that cause displeasure, being very cold or hot, but then there's a reward at the end. And he really got to studying how organisms are able to make those trade-offs in very complex ways, perhaps surprisingly, not just mere reinforcement learning. They have, it seems like they have some abstraction there, uh, a kind of common currency of evaluation that they use and that attach values to different things. So most closely here to Kaepernick, but Kaepernick thought that this capacity would evolve only with land animals, the amniotes, whereas I think that underestimates how complex underwater life is. It's In fact, you might even think it's more complex in virtue of having this additional dimension where you move up and down, right? So that would apply to birds, of course, again, which is why I think um, it helps us to understand why birds seemingly are, are much more cognitively complex than reptiles, because they have to operate in this additional dimension, which really causes at least a minor, comparatively, explosion in this life history complexity where they have to deal with the world, which is perhaps where I think we might find some interesting parallel between swimming animals and flying animals in terms of their cognition. So you see in some um, animals like dolphins that can swim for long times that one brain hemisphere is sleeping while the other one is awake. And similarly in some birds that can fly for a very long time without um, moving their wings all that much, um, seabirds especially, they, it seems, are also able to have one brain half sleeping whereas the other one is awake and then they switch around. So here you might have a case for a particular form of, of um, yeah, convergent evolution of consciousness, perhaps, where you get this disunified streams. And of course, this research in the beginning will be speculative. Um, but I think this approach will help us to probe these different kinds of experiences animals will have much better, not, not just being speculative by asserting, oh, surely this will derive some evolutionary benefit. You see this a lot, perhaps, in evolutionary psychology, um, where there isn't any evidence provided for why we should think that there needs to be empirical evidence for how these capacities would help these animals confer fitness advantages. But here, life history theory can really help us by forcing us to think about what these trade-offs are and how particular forms of experience could help animals or perhaps could decrease their fitness. Yeah. Um, so going lastly, perhaps Godfrey Smith, I think he similarly focused too much on interaction and the sensory side. Um, and my disagreement with a lot of researchers here is that they really don't recognize how complex action itself is. It's almost taken for granted. But as we see in the robotics case, that's we shouldn't do that at all. It's a very complex problem for evolution to solve. And perhaps the reason we, we don't have robots that can engage with the world flexibly is because they don't have a common currency. So I think that's not that implausible. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you. As I obviously find this, the fields of sentience and consciousness fascinating both intellectually and because of obviously i think they're central to grounding moral philosophy such a thing is even possible so 
so many reasons why I think they're fascinating, fascinating and deeply important phenomena. But when I read a lot of the science about consciousness, I'm left wishing the authors knew more philosophy. And when I read a lot of philosophy about minds, I'm left wishing the authors knew a lot more science. And and one of the reasons I really enjoyed reading your book is because you you cover both. You're setting it in a scientific naturalistic context, but you are absolutely addressing the philosophical thinking too. So I'm interested in how you think science and philosophy can work better together in this space and how those fields are shifting as they think about consciousness and particularly the consciousness and the sentience of animals. I'm also frustrated the disconnect between those fields and humanity's worldviews and stances about the ethical implications of sentience and consciousness. So there's something about you know, how much can science and philosophy actually affect humanity and our actions and our choices and our decisions and our institutions. But there's also something about how even the people doing the science and philosophy remain often so trapped by our powerful social norms, particularly about what's acceptable to do to non-human animals. Even the people who have really deeply thought about the distribution of sentience and the salience of sentience and the nature of it remain trapped by these very powerful social norms that allow us to oppress and harm and uh, do catastrophic things to non-humans and other humans. So I find a question in there if you can, but what's your perspective about science, philosophy, well, multiple, and humanity? Multiple questions <laughs> in there, of course. Sorry. Um, I think it's, it's great points you just raised. Um, one thing about ethics is certainly that a lot of moral theorizing is perhaps less concerned with what is ultimately good and more about trying to yeah, have a coherent framework for all these different intuitions we might have about what is right and wrong and um, perhaps having also coherence across individuals such that there could be something like agreement. But that might be a very different approach than when you think about naturalistic science, which doesn't really try to just have consistency, the most consistent answer um, to how should we understand um, life by trying to gather the intuitions of different people and then trying to have a consistent account of that. No, we, we investigate living systems and in virtue of doing these empirical investigations, we try to come up with the best scientific accounts of life. Now, you might think that utilitarianism is perhaps most more closely here to natural science in virtue of not really taking any conclusions for granted in the beginning. This, a lot is just up to future investigations of how different policies might impact well-being of human and non-human systems. Um, and clearly, from a utilitarian perspective, there isn't really any justification for the kind of large-scale factory farming we have for animals. So here it is quite uh, revolutionary. And I sometimes get frustrated with the more, with the less consequentialist approaches to philosophy and ethics that often seem to be more about justifying the status quo, which we obviously know that we, that humans have this strong bias towards just defending the status quo. It's hard for humans to accept that their past behavior might have been morally incorrect. I saw your conversation with Peter Singer recently where he talked about slavery and how someone like Thomas Jefferson sort of 
argued a bit along the lines that, yeah, in the future, slavery would probably no longer exist, but he didn't see himself compelled to free his own slaves, which seems very puzzling. Um, but yeah, human nature isn't of the sort that we would just try to question everything we do and all of our past behavior. We want to seem to ourselves like the like the good guy in the story, right? Um, we start from that assumption that I, I'm a good person, we're good people, therefore what we do must be good. And we often rationalize backwards from there rather than, yeah. Yeah, and, and this then obviously creates this discontent with a lot of social movements that radically challenge those ideas, right? If they're right, that means one might not have been as good a person as one might have thought. That's a complex problem to solve because I think a lot of prob a lot of the problem of activism sometimes is that um, the critics take the most radical activists and then think, oh, that is so radical. There couldn't be anything sensible about it. And that creates a lot of worries about how, yeah, a lot of very sensible arguments are just being discounted. And the status quo is just treated as, as the most sensible approach. But if you look at the past, status quo arguments almost never work, right? Very few people now would say, well, uh, a few decades ago, uh, perhaps women weren't allowed to vote so clearly doesn't seem that bad but now from our from our modern perspective no one would make that argument but back then it was certainly very common to say look this is how we've done it always why would we change it now i don't necessarily have an answer here but i think in virtue of studying animal consciousness in this non-anthropocentric way of trying to understand their their lives from their own perspective we can raise more empathy with those beings, um, which will make it much harder to have this disconnect. And I very much hope that studying animal consciousness further can really help us to, yeah, also help animal welfare science to think much more about what the positive states are that animals enjoy, go away from just eliminating diseases and like, no, we want to think about what kind of things they enjoy? Do they enjoy social lives? They might not be able to have that at all in a factory farm environment. Uh, for instance, being taken away from their young offspring, this might be extremely traumatizing to animals if, if, if that harm is even, is even remotely similar to the, the kind of yeah, terrible feelings associated with mothers losing their daughters, for instance, right? This, if it's even remotely close to that, it seems like a terrible thing to do. Um, so I think in the future, factory farming will probably be illegal, at least in some countries. Well, it's probably not happening from one day to another. We'll just have stronger and stronger animal welfare guidelines. I don't think there's ever going to be this moment where farms completely disappear. But there will be happy farms in the future where animals live good lives and probably better lives than animals live in the wild where they have to deal with diseases, predation and the like. Where Some farm animals in the future might have very comfortable life in comparisons. Um, so I'm certainly not that concerned about an argument along these lines that because they don't experience this true freedom in the sense of being in the involved environment, they aren't necessarily deprived of welfare. 
um, I think looking at the natural lives and their evolved uh, lifestyles and behaviors can help us to understand what they like, what they dislike. Uh, and I think that is very important, but we shouldn't confuse it perhaps with the idea that unless an animal lives its completely natural lifestyle, where they have to every day uh, walk for 10 hours to go from one water spot to the nearest food patch and so forth, it's very doubtful an animal would like it if it just could have all those nice things near each other, right? Spend more time resting in the sun, uh, in enjoying a nice soft enclosure and things like that. I think there's an important point there because it's very easy for us to assume, you know, what animals want, and we may be getting that wrong, and that can lead us down some wrong paths. And I think the essence really is genuinely with integrity, and we'll never get this right, trying to take their perspective and understand what things are like for them and use that judgment to decide what's right and wrong. And there is a risk here, and I talked about this with the singer to a degree, which is there's a risk that we can take that stance. We say, look, actually what we need to do is think about what their lives are like, and maybe we can make farmed animals positive for them, and we can give them food and water and shelter and so on, and and may, maybe so. But we also need to carry that through and understand what their perspective is actually like when it comes down to, as you said, families being separated, physical mutilations, constraints and imprisonment, and ultimately, you know, even in the most supposedly humane farms, ultimately being killed when you reach slaughter weight. Um, and I think if we make sure we genuinely switch to take their perspective and consider their interests and the quality of their life, the things that matter to them, and their interest in continu continuing to live, that's the path we should take. But there is a risk there that we, you know, our usual human way, right? we selectively pick the parts of the story that we want to use to tell ourselves that we've kept, you know, made some sort of humane, happy farm when in reality, from the perspective of the individuals concerned, um, things are still bleak and awful things are being done. And, and again, we do that in a way that we would never apply to other humans, which again, betrays the risk I find there and in sort of focusing too much on the welfare story, there's there's some dangers there that we need to be careful of. I, I can see that point. I mean, if you think about social movements like abolishment of slavery, abolishment of racial segregation, uh, you might think that once we get rid of slavery, everything is equal. Uh, whites and blacks are treated equally, they're now equal citizens, but that did not happen. And similarly, you might think in the animal case, we might have these minor improvements, but it will be this long, continuous fight. And it might, we might think, look, it's still very immoral, even if we make these improvements. But I guess I'm, I'm similar to Singer, a bit of a pragmatist here, where I think, look, if you make these improvements, it seems like we wouldn't lose them again. Like, it seems like we're at least going in one direction without taking steps back. So I'm pretty hopeful that we'll yeah, have a, have a better and better understanding where the status quo is more and more shifted. Now, this might be a slow development, um, admittedly. Um, after all, like, do you want to wait a lifetime before animals have a really good treatment? That would that see, seems very frustrating if you're engaged in in trying to make the lives as good as possible. Yeah, I agree, and I and I'm I'm fully in favor of incremental improvements. They are by definition improvements so that they're, they're good my worry is when they become dead ends um, and that was the alternative i framed to singer is i can imagine 
us convincing ourselves that we've now rebranded animal farming as humane and sustainable and but in reality it's even bigger and even more industrial and so so I, I'm I'm in favor of incremental improvements and improving welfare, but we shouldn't convince we shouldn't kid ourselves that that's the answer. We need to keep working, keep improving, particularly when we have alternatives at industrial scale ready right now that we can just switch to. There is no imperative to continue doing these things at all. There just is an alternative, right? Yeah. I agree and I worry that we might reach the same stage with uh with say racial discrimination where there's a lot of humans who say, look. Uh, legally, legally, there's no difference. Discrimination is, that's a myth. It doesn't exist anymore. In similar, you might worry that in the animal case, at some point, we might come to say, or many humans might come to say, look, no, we've, this, we've, we've implemented all these animal welfare policies. Now everything is good. There's, there's nothing more to be done. Anything beyond that is just radical activists. And that's certainly a concern. Um, that I very much uh, agree is a worry. But there's probably no easy solutions here, unfortunately. Different countries have different animal welfare standards, and we'll just have to try to create more empathy for animals, uh, really expand from, I mean, that's what the podcast in a sense is about, move away from this humanist perspective to think about all sentient beings whether they are non-human animals or perhaps AI systems, and really think about your morality not just being about humans, but about any systems that have interests, that those interests might have to be protected and safeguarded from exploitation. Yeah, Peter Singer is actually organizing a conference in October that I'll probably attend um, on ethics, animals, and AI. Talk a bit about how predictive animal livestock farming might help us to improve animal welfare. I think there's a worry that this technology, like other technologies, will be used to exploit animals further. But I'm quite optimistic that at least in principle it could be used to track the animal welfare and health much better. Because unlike a veterinarian who might come once a month to check on a, 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 a tiny sample of the animals, we might have a lot of cameras that keep track of the animals across time to have this much better assessment and perhaps the eyes could then have this speciesist bias perhaps removed such that they come to care about the animal case, um, which would be great because certainly there's a worry here that we might just replicate these speciesist biases into AI just like we've done with racist biases or sexist biases. And I'm not sure... If you, for instance, uh, ask things like, or make a joke about a minority group, ChatGPT will refuse. There's a lot of Twitter pictures on that. Um, but if you say something like that about animals, I'm not sure there would be a safeguard against those kind of speciesist. And I've joked about it before, but it's not, it's not even really a joke. But I'm not sure that we're setting a great example to powerful AI about how to treat less powerful sentient Humans, beings right which is yeah yeah, yeah we, we <laughs> might want to think about the example we're setting a little bit um so i and to your earlier point i think you know i agree welfare improvements are helpful but we need to see them as steps towards better uh ends not to end goals particularly when we do actually have alternatives that would allow us to completely abolish a form of exploitation you know we just have to acknowledge that's a choice that we could take and we could all take it 
pretty much right now, right? I mean, it's, these are technically quite easy problems to solve. The problem really is the social norms and the political will. But that's partly where I get some optimism from, coming back to the earlier point about science and philosophy, is that it almost feels like the, the big problem really is the political will and the social norms sort of in the centre. But actually, the where it feels like science and philosophy are shifting to is a consensus that one, sentience is very broadly distributed through the animal kingdom, and two, it is morally salient, such that needlessly harming or killing a sentient being should be seen as a moral wrong, or at least a moral negative, right? So I don't want to be too optimistic, because there are many people who disagree with that, but it feels like that's increasingly where the central gravity of science and philosophy hopefully will go. But And that, interestingly, also does match up with the way most humans already think. Because most humans, if you strip aside the social norms and you know, the powerful indoctrination about how we should treat non-human animals, most humans, particularly if you pick young humans, right, will intuitively understand that the puppy at my feet is a sentient being, that they can feel pain, that they can feel joy, and that that matters. And who would want to needlessly cause harm? right? So there's almost a sort of latent sentientist human ethic waiting to be tapped into science and philosophy is moving to that stance and i don't know that's on my more optimistic days i'm wondering if those two things can come together to sort of crack away at these social norms in the middle and make change happen quickly but when you look at experimental philosophy studies of what the intuitions are of the public i often am much closer to those than say how philosophers treat some concepts like qualia whereas the general public, it seems at least according to some recent studies, seems to think about consciousness in terms of these hedonic valence states rather than some sensory experience of blue or red. Um, so that's fairly interesting. And similarly, when it comes to suffering, um, there's a kind of folk notion of morality where any being that can suffer deserves a moral recognition. Right? Uh, for instance, when I was a kid, uh, on my great-grandmother's uh, farm. There was this little pig I was playing with. I was like, I don't know, seven years old, and I was riding it and um, running around playing with it. It seemed very, uh, in, to much enjoy its life, but it turned out that uh, one meal uh, was unbeknownst to me, this pig. And when I was told that later, I was horrified. In fact, one year later, I came back. There was again a pig, and I thought, oh, it remembers me. Um, but, yeah, in retrospect, that's a bit horrific. And I'm sure if you were, if, if you would tell kids that, they would much easier turn into vegetarians or vegans. Uh, I think um, the only way that doesn't happen is often when you hide the fact of how horrific perhaps factory farms are. And then for humans, obviously, that have eaten meat for decades, it's much harder to switch towards vegetarianism or veganism. So especially for children, I think these uh, formative experiences can be very important with liking animals. Now, I wouldn't want to you know, um, necessarily show factory farms to children because it might be very horrific for them, traumatizing in a way, but perhaps necessary. After all, is it better to traumatize someone versus have them kill 
hundreds of animals of thousands across the lifetime. There might be a worthwhile trade-off here. And there's yeah. a signal there as well, right? If 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 it's too horrific to show to children, it's probably too horrific to do. Right? That's it's, right. Maybe that exposes how bad. There's it a really message. Is. There's a message. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you've been so generous with your time. Thank you so much. Was there anything else you wanted to add in on the science of philosophy topic before we wrap up? Well, I can show my book again. I hope people will be interested in this. This picture was taken by Francesca Cornero at Nikki Clayton's Corvid Lab. You might be familiar with it. They do a lot of studies on the surprising memory and intelligence capacities of Corvids, including ravens, uh, crows, uh, and the like. Yeah, in, in extremely intelligent birds. I had the pleasure to spend some time in a lab. You mentioned that I tried to very much combine philosophy and science. There's far too little of that where scientists uh, talk to philosophers uh, and philosophers visit scientific labs to really make progress. Where I think this is really where the most progress can be done, bringing these different perspectives together. Yeah, I think I might have talked about this a bit in our last meeting where I said, look, philosophers probably can do the most good by trying to look at these different scientific disciplines that don't really talk to each other because they don't have the time. They don't have the perhaps expertise here. Philosophers can be, as Kim Sturelny says, um, competent B-level speakers and try to bring these perspectives together to progress uh, scientific and philosophical um, uh, questions bring us closer to answers and I think this will be the way forward and obviously in the past there was a bit of a stance in philosophy that philosophy should be completely separate from science but that vanished I think we're now moving closer towards science I hope this is a movement that continues we'll see there's a lot of engagement of philosophers now with public policy um, with decision making politics um, yeah and I hope this continues and we can actually have an impact on protecting animals yeah I hope so and I think your book will be an important step in that process yeah so thank you so much I'll include links to the book in the show notes of course wonderful um, and to your uh, social media um, <laughs> uh, and it's been a real pleasure to have you as a guest for the second time on the Sentientism podcast. Maybe thank you so much. Maybe third time. Thank you so I much. I would love to do that for the next yeah. book on AI and Artificial Mind. Yeah, we should do that yes. too. And say hi to Heather for me too. So. I will. We'll, we'll see each other again, hopefully soon. Yeah, congratulations on the launch. Speak to you soon. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalise rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?